Well, last week I laid a foundation for the parable of the ten minas in Luke chapter 19. And we looked at what exactly the kingdom of God is and, and why there was a misunderstanding about the return of Jesus, or how, not the return, sorry, how the, the, the kingdom that Jesus would establish. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to bring in his kingdom immediately and um, he would judge the, the, the Roman emp- the, the, the oppressors. But today we will examine what Jesus was teaching in this parable about the kingdom of God and why he was teaching it to his disciples. Remember that Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem at this time. He is in Jericho, which is 25 kilometers away from Jerusalem, probably an eight-hour walk. And the closer he gets, the more excited the people are becoming, the anticipation is, is growing because they, they think that, that Jesus is going to assume the kingship and he's going to establish his physical kingdom on this earth. So let's read together again the parable of the, the ten minas in Luke chapter 19 from verse 11 to verse 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. This is really just an excuse that this man is making. Look at verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, imagine that we knew that Jesus was going to return this time next week. So seven days. Imagine we knew that Jesus was coming back in seven days' time. My question to you this morning is, how would you act differently this week? 
what would be on your must-do list and what would be on your really doesn't matter to-do list. So for me, for example, on, on the top of my must-do list would be to have these intentional gospel conversations with uh, families of mine and friends of mine that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on my really doesn't matter list would be to pump up the car tires or, or wash the, the vehicles that are, that are very dusty outside that my children haven't washed. Um, I hope you're listening. <laughs> or to water the plants that we have just recently been given to look after. There's a number of things that are still on the not, not really doesn't matter list. But what would be on, on your lists? If you knew that Jesus was going to return this time next week, what would be on your must-do list? And then, of course, what would be on your really doesn't matter list? Well, as we saw last week, Jesus is hinting at his imminent departure. And he promised that he would return and that he is going to return. We don't know when he will return. Maybe he will return this next week. Maybe he will return next month. Maybe he will return in 2021. We hope he does, but we really do not know. But if you did know, what would you do differently? What would you do until he was to return? And we know that he's not going to return as the, the meek servant king. He is going to be coming on the horse as a, as a king in, in judgment and in glorious triumph and in victory. And we know when he returns, he will be consummating his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is going to be visible to everybody to see. So in this passage, we'll see as the Lord is teaching his disciples to make good use of the time that they have. There are four lessons that we're going to look at this morning. And the first one is from verse 12 to verse 13. And that is the gifts, the gifts to carry on his work. Well, the Lord gives gifts, we see in verse 12. He says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So in the parable here, there are ten servants, and every single one of them are given one mina each, which makes a total of, of ten. And a mina was a, a Greek silver coin that was equal to a hundred days' wages. So there was they, they were to take this coin and they were to engage in business. They were to use this coin to profit the, the nobleman when he returned. They were to engage in profitable business. There is a similar parable that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But the parable in Matthew, the parable of the talents, is, is a different lesson completely. It's very similar, but it's, it's very different. The parable in Matthew shows that the different servants were given different abilities. They were given different talents. Um, so some was given ten, some were given five, some were given one. 
And I think sometimes people wrongly apply that um, parable. And what people say is that our responsibilities are, 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 are relative because we are given different abilities that we aren't expected to do much. If we have small abilities, if we have less abilities, if we have less talents, we aren't expected to do as much as those people who have more talents. Well, as we will see that, that this parable doesn't, doesn't teach that or support that, that wrong application at all. Because here, every single servant is given the same amount of coins. They are given the same gift. And the difference in results is not due to, to differing gifts. The difference in results is because of the levels of, of diligence in using the gifts that the Lord had given to them. So the fact that each servant had received Amina shows that it was not just the 12 apostles who were in view here. So this is not just for, for the super apostles or, or the super Christians. But I think God has in view here every single person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. Every single person who calls himself a Christian. This parable is, is not directed just to those in leadership, but to all of Christ's subjects. And the fact that each was given the same amount shows that it's not talking about different gifts, but to something that all followers of Christ share in common. And what do we all share in common? What do we all have? It's talking about the Word of God, and in particular, the central message of the Scriptures the gospel. And we've all been given it. We've all been entrusted with it. We've all been given the same gospel. And we're all told to do business with it for our king during his absence. And each servant is to be faithful in, in multiplying the gospel. So how exactly do we do this? This is a question. How exactly do we do this? Well, obviously, sharing the gospel is an obvious way that we can Make an investment in the kingdom of God. And we're all supposed to be doing that. Matthew 28 tells us that. Other passages in the Gospels tell us that. But making disciples is, a, is another powerful way to multiply the gospel work. Now, when Jesus came, Jesus didn't just settle for addition. I hope if you've done any level of math, you understand the difference between addition and, and multiplication. I'm looking at Gabriel right now. You understand the difference, boy? One plus one is two, right? Okay. Then it comes multiplication. We aren't just supposed to be sharing the gospel with people and leaving it at that. We're supposed to be multiplying it in the lives of people, helping them to know the truth, helping them to grow in the truth, helping them to understand the truth so that they can share the gospel with others. And that multiplication effect has been going on for, for 2,000 years. We are to multiply ourselves into a few so that, so that billions could one day know the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus did. We are to follow his example. Another, another way that we can be intentional about multiplying the gospel is, is with the intention of bringing glory to God in everything that we do. Um, I ask often, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? 
And the Westminster Catechism tells us the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So anything that we do with the intention of bringing glory to God is an investment into the, the kingdom. And this includes loving our families well, loving our spouses well, loving our friends with the love of Christ, our work colleagues, loving strangers, loving our enemies, loving those who are, are sick and those who are lonely with the, the love of the Lord. That is an investment in the kingdom of God. Of course, growing in our own Christian lives through repentance and, and prayer and daily dependence on the Holy Spirit is an investment in the kingdom of God. And there are many other ways that we see in the scriptures, but that kind of covers that principle that I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, he stated the governing purpose of his life. He said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So Paul understood that he was to multiply the gospel. But not just Paul and the apostles, every single one of us need to have this goal in mind. We need to have this kingdom-mindedness. This is the words that we're trying to help you become more and more familiar with. We need to be kingdom-minded people doing everything for the sake of the gospel. We should see ourselves in the, in the business of, of gospel. It's not just the pastors and the elders who are in ministry. We are all ministers of the gospel. We are all ministers of reconciliation. That's what the scriptures tell us we are. We are to be reconciling people to the Lord with the gospel. We are to use the capital that, that Jesus gives us to make a profit for him in his absence. So being kingdom-minded means being faithful in multiplying the gospel. Of course, you cannot be kingdom-minded if you are not a Christian. If you do not possess the gospel as your own, then you are not a Christian. And this message really doesn't make sense to you this morning. And no matter how often you attend church, no matter how much money you give to the church, no matter how much you serve the church, you are not a Christian. So a Christian is someone who has heard the good news that Jesus Christ is the, the Savior of, of sinners and has personally believed that good news as his own. And he has responded to the good news. He's responded in faith and repentance. In other words, a, a true Christian does not just believe in a general sense that Jesus is the Savior. You know, I, I believe that Queen Elizabeth exists. I believe that she's a real person. But I don't have a true a personal relationship with her. I've never met her personally. I've seen her. I've heard about her. I've, I've read about her. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is he somebody that you've just heard about? When I stand before God, when you stand before God, and he asks me and he asks you why I should why he should let us into his holy heaven, what would your answer be? We've spoken about this. How would you answer? Would you point to all of your works that you've done? Or would you point to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has done for us on the cross of Calvary? If you have not believed in the gospel 
then you cannot be kingdom-minded. If you have personally believed the message of the gospel, then understand the gospel has been entrusted to you. It's been entrusted to you. And it has not been entrusted to you just so that you treasure it for yourself, so that you would share it with others. So the question this morning is, what return are you making for Christ's investment in you? And what profit will you have to show the Lord Jesus Christ when He returns? Well, let's look at the second point. Let's look at verse 14. We see in verse 14 that, that Jesus will be hated by some while He is away. Verse 14 says, But His citizens hated Him and sent a delegation after Him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. Now remember, Jesus is telling His direct audience this parable, and they, I think, would understand the context in what he's talking about. Remember last week I told you about Archelaus, the, the son of Herod. And Archelaus was to go to Rome in order to be installed as king. And he had to leave, he had to leave Jericho where his palace was in order to do that. But here's this nobleman who's traveling to a far country hoping to receive a kingdom and then return, we see but the problem is his citizens are hating him. And he sends a delegation after, there's a delegation that is sent after him. It says, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is almost exactly what happened to Archelaus. Jesus was using that not to compare himself to the evil and wicked Archelaus, but to compare himself to the, to the situation. Okay? Jesus is the nobleman here. He is the nobleman. Look at the circumstance. Jesus is the son of the father. And he was about to receive this kingdom. He would travel to a far country, which is heaven, where he would receive this authority because of his death and his resurrection and ascension. And he would be crowned in this court of heaven. And then he would return. And we anticipate his return. But one commentator said, some of them would put him to death. Others would refuse to believe in his resurrection or acknowledge his ascension to the royal throne. Others would lodge their protests in the courts of heaven. And they would say of Jesus, we do not want this man to reign over us. And there are many people like that still today who do not want Jesus to reign over them. And until Jesus returns, he will continue to be hated by some. Remember, we live in this evil world, this world that has been infected and affected and corrupted with sin. And this evil world is, is hostile toward God. And it does not want to submit to Jesus as the Lord and King. And it's in this hostile world that we are told to do the business of the king. We are to be good stewards with the gospel. In this hostile environment, we are to multiply, do the work of multiplication by investing the gospel in the lives 
of people who may not want to hear that. There is always a risk in doing business in a hostile environment. But the greater risk is not to do any business at all. As we will see, the one servant, he wrapped the master's mina in a handkerchief and did nothing with it. That is the worst response that we could possibly make. We are to use the mina and employ it for the purpose of the master, even in a hostile environment. There was a story in World Magazine in April 2000 that reported that three children were killed in Bosnia when they wandered into a minefield. And one of them was an 11-year-old girl who called for help for hours before she died. But no one would go into the minefield to help her. And as a result, she ended up wandering and stepping on a mine. But I wonder what, what would you have done if you had heard that little girl call for help? What would I have done? You know, fear can, can cripple all of us, can it not? Fear can keep us from, from being effective, from being kingdom-minded for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear can keep us from taking any risks to help those in need. And fear can keep us living for our own selves, for our own comforts, for our own pleasures, rather than helping others who are in need. And fear keeps us from reaching out and sharing the gospel with those who are living in darkness, those who are living in minefields, waiting for the mind to explode. What is our response? Could this be one of the reasons why Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure? He knows that they're going to be in this minefield. And that they can't allow fear to cripple them, to do nothing, and to hide under a rock, and, and just wait for the Lord to return. That was not what the Lord wanted them to do. That's not what the Lord wants us to do. Could it be that this is the reason Jesus told his disciples before he left them that all authority is his, to remind them that he is in control? If Jesus is not the king of this kingdom, and he is not this all-powerful sovereign Lord... And if he is not personally with us to the end, and if we don't trust him to be all of this for us, then yes, let's live under a rock in fear, folks. But all authority has been given to him. He is sovereign. And we cannot ignore the needs of others. And we can trust him, even in the minefield, even when we cannot see what is in front of us, even with the dangers ahead of us. We know all things. Work together for good to those who love Him. We can trust Him. We mustn't allow fear to cripple us. And God says to His children in Isaiah chapter 41, He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will keep you. I'm sorry, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand even though the world hates our master and does not want him to reign over them even though we we live in this hostile environment the fact doesn't change he is still the sovereign 
king of this universe who has all authority and will return to judge the rebellious. We need to warn those living in the minefields before it is too late. Let's not be like the, the unfaithful servant. Let's not wrap the, the mina in a handkerchief and, and hide it away. Not only are other people's souls at stake, but so are our rewards, as we will see here in this passage. We will lose our rewards if we refuse to do business for the master's eternal profits. And that leads to my third point. We see the rewards for the faithful when he returns. The rewards for the faithful when he returns. From verse 15 to verse 19. Speaking to the nobleman, Jesus says in verse 15, speaking of the nobleman, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So the delay in the master's return, as we see, doesn't mean that he is not going to return. His return is certain, though it is delayed. And the group of these disgruntled citizens hoped that, that he would not return, but he did return. And he returned as king. And when he returns, we will have to give an account. The nobleman returned, and the servants had to give an account of what they had done with the minas that were given to them, that were entrusted to them. We see in this parable the servant who made ten minas with one mina. And as a result, he received rewards. He received ten times the, the reward. And we see another servant who with one mina, he made five minas, and he received five times the reward. And the master commends the servant. He says to him, well done, good servant. And notice the rest of the verse. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. There's a, there's a lot of speculation what these ten cities mean, whether it's literal or not. I don't think this is literal. I don't think that it's talking about 10 cities in the, the millennium, although it could, it very possibly could talk about that, that this servant would be in charge of 10 cities in the millennium. But I think the main idea here is that the servant's responsible use of the master's mina will be rewarded with, with increased responsibility in the future kingdom. The servant has shown himself to be faithful in a little, and he, as a result, is given more to be faithful in more. And we can learn several things about the doctrine of rewards from this parable. We see the way the master rewards his two servants. And, and I hope you notice here, ten servants are given one mina each. And only two servants profit the master. Twenty percent of the, the servants he has do the work that they're supposed to do. 
Matthew Henry, he says, this parable intimates that there are degrees of glory in heaven. Every vessel will be alike full, but not alike large. And the degrees of glory there will be according to the degrees of usefulness here. So let me explain this lesson by asking you a question. What are you doing with what the Lord has given to you? So this passage is not saying that we have to do things in order to go to heaven. This passage is talking about rewards for those who are already His children. Remember, we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But we are saved by faith in order to do works. Not so that we can just sit around on our hands or in a cave and do nothing for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved to do works. We are saved to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do with the time that the Lord has given to you? What do you do with the resources that the Lord has given to you? What do you do with the money that He's given to you? What do you do with the truth that the Lord has invested into you? Everything that we have been given by the Lord is to be used for the extension of His kingdom. Everything that we've been given by the Lord, and that is everything, by the way, everything we have belongs to the Lord. Are we using it for eternal significance? Or are we building castles in the sand, wasting the resources the Lord has given us? One pastor said once, Why waste time thinking about earthly ambitions when God has greater glories in store? Well, let's bring this to a completion in the fourth point this morning from verse 20 to verse 27. We see the judgment for the unfaithful when he returns. So there was one more servant who gave an account of what was given to him. We see the servant in verse 20. It tells us, Another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So rather than putting this money to, to good use, the servant did nothing. He hid it away. He put it in a handkerchief. While the other servants did whatever they could to invest their, their money and make more money, this, this servant hid his money away, maybe, maybe in, in his pocket or maybe under his pillow. One commentator says, Many people do the same thing with the gifts that come from God. Rather than putting the gospel to good use, they are afraid to talk about their faith. They are afraid to give good, are afraid to give God more of their money than they think they can spare. They are afraid to do anything for Jesus that goes beyond their own abilities, and therefore forces them to trust in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Holding back from the clear call of God like this is not humility; it is pride and rebellion. And fear. Instead of owning up to his failure, we see what the servant does. Instead of using the money that his master had given him 
for good use. The servant actually starts to blame the master. He says to the master in verse 20, 21, he says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Now, this is not truth. This is just excuses. He says, you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. He's slandering the master's character right here. This is not truth. Do you see what he's doing here? He's, he's, he's making excuses. He's blaming the master. He's saying it's the master's fault that he was afraid. It's the master's fault that he did nothing. It's the master's fault that he wasn't faithful. And he starts to blame the master rather than taking responsibility. If the master is so bad, why even be part of this employment? If the master is, is so severe, why don't you find employment somewhere else? This is just an excuse. He was lazy. He was unfaithful. And we see the master judges the servant by his own words. The master doesn't even defend his character here. He just uses his own words to, to judge the servant. He takes a single mina from him and he gives it to the man who has earned 10 more. And look at verse 26. The bystanders, you know, they, they are surprised. And he explains to them in verse 26 why he's doing this. He says, To everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the one who has proven himself faithful will have more opportunities for faithfulness. That's the principle that the Lord is teaching here to his disciples. The one who is unfaithful, the one who has been unfaithful, will be stripped of his rewards, will be stripped of his responsibilities. So the question is, does this unfaithful servant represent a true believer who, who has backslidden, who, who loses his rewards? First um, Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that. Or is he a person who professes to know God? But he denies, his, he denies the Lord by his deeds, by his actions. While the parable is not very clear, the parable doesn't say clearly which of these two people he is. But it seems to me that this third servant really represents somebody who professes to be a Christian. Who's even in the church. Who even is part of Bible studies or uses the same language as us. But actually, he doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he helped me come to this conclusion. When he says in his commentary on this passage, he says, hard thoughts of God are a common mark of all unconverted people. They first misrepresent him and then try to excuse themselves for not loving and serving him. So I think this is what's happening here with this servant. He has these hard thoughts of God. He has these hard thoughts of his master. He doesn't believe his master to be good at all. He doesn't believe his master to be kind. Instead, he thinks that God is severe. I think this third servant represents those in the church who, who know the gospel, who've heard the gospel and should believe it, 
but they don't. They're rather indifferent. They're rather unconcerned. They don't really prioritize or care much about the purpose of the master or the purpose of the kingdom. And as a result, they, they do nothing with the gospel. The gospel is not important to them. They have no desire to further the kingdom. They live for themselves. And they make up excuses why they're not serving the king. Look at verse 27. The nobleman says, But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Remember, this is exactly what Archelaus did when he returned to Judea from Rome. All of his enemies he had killed, he destroyed them. So Jesus' audience would have understood perfectly the context. They would have understood perfectly what Jesus was talking about. And I think the lesson and the principle is clear for us. That Jesus will destroy all of those who are opposed to him when he returns. All of those who think that he is not a good, good father. All of those who think he is severe. All of those who think he is this hard taskmaster and rebel against him. These are the people that will be destroyed upon the return of our Lord. Even though they hated the king and they actively opposed his, his reign, nothing they did or will do can stop the king from consummating his kingdom. While in the parable we see the penalty is, is execution, this is really very mild in comparison to the eternal judgment that awaits those who reject the coming king, who refuse to submit to his rule, who think he is hard and will not be involved in the kingdom, in the business of the kingdom. They will experience eternal torment away from the presence and the glory of the Lord forever and ever. Well, this parable, let me make a few applications as we close this morning. There's three categories that are really mentioned here. The first category is the reward for faithful stewards. And then the second one is the rejection for those who associate with Jesus but do not really trust him. And then the third category is judgment for rebels who, who openly reject Jesus. So the question I want to ask you this morning as we finish is which of these three categories do you belong to? Remember, there's no neutral position when it comes to Christ. There's no fourth category. There's no fifth category. Which of those three categories do you belong to? Each one of us is in one of these three categories. Where do you see yourself this morning? I hope that none here are actively opposing his right to be the king. I hope nobody listening to, to us this morning are openly rejecting the king. If this is true with you, then you need to repent. You need to repent of your unbelief before he comes, before it is too late, before you will face his awful wrath.
Maybe you are in the group who professes to know Him, but, but you're actually living for yourself. You're not doing business for the King. Well, let me encourage you to repent of your sin of unbelief. Put your faith and trust in this good, good King. And use your time and resources well to invest the gospel of Jesus Christ in service to others. Do you see yourself in business for the Master's gospel? If you're a Christian this morning, He has entrusted the gospel message to you. If you're a true believer, you are the steward who should be doing the business of the kingdom. Let me finish by telling you a story of a man who lived in a far, far away land that was hostile to the gospel. While well, he moved to this country with the intention of living every day for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. Let's call this man, let's call this man Bud. Bud would take every opportunity to, to share Christ with unbelievers. He would tell people that he met in the store about Jesus. Bud would tell his work colleagues about Jesus. He would even fearlessly go to the labor camps and tell people about Jesus. Many people thought that, that Bud was a radical and he was too much. But many people loved Bud's sincerity and his passion. And one day, Bud invited work colleagues to his home after work. And he made dinner for them, and he shared the gospel with them. And the authorities in this hostile environment, they, they found out about this. And he was apprehended. And he was given 24 hours to leave the country or, or face imprisonment. And Bud was fired from his job, and he was forced to leave the country. And many people said that, that Bud had taken risks that he should not have taken. Many people said that he had compromised his future financial security. Many people thought that Bud was, was foolish for being so bold and brave in sharing the gospel in a hostile environment. But when Bud finally left for the eternal city, he was greeted by the king of the eternal kingdom who said these words to him. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. I hope this morning that you want to be one of these faithful servants. Let's not waste our lives or the gifts that the Lord has given to us by, by running after this, this temporary evil kingdom. We only have so much time to live, and we need to live it wisely. We need to warn those living in the minefields around us before it's too late. And even though the world hates our master, and even though the world doesn't want our master to reign over them, even though we, we live in a hostile environment, we cannot allow fear to cripple our work for the king. Our faith needs to be in our sovereign Lord who has all authority, and He will return. And He promises 
to be with us to the very end. Don't let fear keep you from being an effective, kingdom-minded Christian. Jesus is the king of this eternal kingdom. And he is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord. And he promises to personally be with us to the very end. If you profess to be a Christian, make a commitment today to live for the glory of God and for the extension of His kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Son. Thank You, Father, that we don't have to live in a world that is without hope. Thank You, the Lord, that we don't live in a world that doesn't make sense. Thank you, Lord, for taking us out of darkness and bringing us into the marvelous light that we may be these ministers of reconciliation. Lord, our greatest problem has been solved by your Son who took the sin that we should have paid for and paid for it on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for what your son has accomplished on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we have the promise of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray today that you would help us, Lord, not to take this wonderful gift for granted, that we would be wise, faithful stewards who live every second of the day, not for our glory, not for our comfort, but for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, please take away the fog of this world that keeps us looking down. Take away the, the sin and all the excuses so that we can look up, that we can see clearly, that we can live lives that, that reflect the glorious Savior that we profess and that we possess. Lord, help us this week to be kingdom-minded. Help us this week to be faithful with every opportunity that you give us. May we not hide the mina in our pocket. May we use it and multiply it for the extension of your kingdom. And may we all hear one day you say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We pray this prayer for your glory, Lord and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.